Karl Barth was probably one of the most brilliant and complex intellectuals of the 20th century. Um, he was a Swiss Reformed theologian. He's best known for his Epistle to the Romans commentary. He was also the author of a five-volume theological summary titled Church Dogmatics. It got split into 14 books. Uh, the number of writings that he did was just unbelievable. Very wise, very astute. I, I'm not saying I agree with everything that Karl Barth taught and wrote, but a very concerned individual that we understand and return to the Word of God. He was once asked by a seminary student, Dr. Bart, what was the greatest thought that ever crossed your mind? Everyone was posed, ready to hear how great this how how this great thinker would respond to that question. And as the story goes, he waited for what seemed like eternity to the audience. And then, very slowly, he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. For this great biblical scholar and thinker, the greatest of all thoughts is that Jesus loves us and gave his life for us to save us from our sins. It was all about salvation for him. And if you think about it, salvation has been the dominant theme of this letter of 1 Peter up to this point. There's no question that hope might be the sub-theme, but salvation is the main theme. In fact, already in just these first nine verses, not only has the subject been dealt with, but the very word itself has been used two times and will be used again as we begin our text for today. Verse 5, verse 9, and today in our text. Two weeks ago, we saw how Peter emphasized that our new birth as Christians, moved us from meaninglessness into a living hope. It moved us from being strangers into an inheritance. And it moved us from being lost into a salvation that is ready for us. And then last Sunday, as we saw that this, and talked about the suffering that we undergo, right there, in juxtaposition with joy, he shared with us how even our trials are something that we can rejoice about because they help us to focus upon the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And today, our text begins concerning this salvation. And that's what I have taken the title for my sermon today concerning salvation. In fact, in our text for today, 
there's going to be another phrase, preparing your minds for action. And that's where I have the whole theme for this study of sermons out of 1 Peter. So if you would, read with me these first verses of 1 Peter 10 through 16. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Salvation, holiness, Again, you even heard him say, preparing your minds for action. I shared with you, as we began this series of sermons three weeks ago, that commentators and speakers have noted that 1 Peter very well could be considered a handbook for Christian living. A handbook for Christian discipleship. Written for our encouragement but also as an explanation and an exhortation as to how you and I should be living, especially in the midst of ridicule, to say the least, and in many cases, outright persecution. This past week, once again, was a very deadly week for Christians in other parts of the world. And did you hear about it in the news? No. No. And the interesting thing about this passage is that even in the midst of persecution, Peter is just overflowing with praise. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 5 and 6, he talks about rejoicing in the knowledge of salvation that is ready to be revealed. Verse 8, We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory regarding the outcome of our faith, which He proclaims to be the salvation of your souls. And so as we move into our text for today, Peter wants to describe to us just how great this salvation is. You know, sometimes the best way to make it through times of great trouble is to focus on the good things that God has in store for us. I remember those summer football practices when it was like close to 100 degrees and we had all of that football gear on. And the guy would say, all right, just two more laps and then we'll take a break. 
And it was easier to run those two laps than it had been to do a lot of the stuff before because we knew that break was coming and we would have something cold to drink underneath the shade tree. That, that thing that we could look to to help us. And even at the point of death, Christians can rejoice because of the knowledge of salvation that we possess. I shared with you last week the words of a friend who was with William Blake, the poet, as he died. And he said, just before he died, his countenance became fair, his eyes brightened, and he burst out in singing of the things he saw in heaven. Probably everybody here has heard the name Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody, just before he took his final breath, proclaimed, this is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It is glorious. And then he closed his eyes and died. This is my triumph. You see, Peter's goal in verses 10 to 12 is to describe for us just how great this salvation is. And he's doing this to Christians who are facing persecution. And so he continues the encouragement, and the first thing he reminds them is that concerning this salvation, the prophets searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You say, well, okay, what's that mean? Well, it means that the prophets really didn't know who the Messiah was going to be, who that Savior was going to be, But they understood by means of revelation that whoever it was was in fact going to suffer on our behalf. And those sufferings were going to bring about glory. And you know what? That should serve to remind you and I about the unity of Scripture. I've shared with you before how Back in my dad's early years of preaching, all he carried was a New Testament. And you would hear him frequently say, we're New Testament Christians. And we are, in that sense, New Testament Christians because that's where we find out about the whole plan of salvation. But we cannot understand the New Testament if we don't read and know the Old Testament. I shared with you that I was going to be talking about that passage in Luke 24. Disciples on the road to Emmaus. And here's what I didn't share with them. After he asked them why they were so sad, and they said, are you the only person who doesn't know about these things? It says that at that time, Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, He interpreted to them all that the Scriptures taught concerning Himself. It says, after Jesus disappeared, they said, man... 
weren't our hearts just buzzing when we listened to him? Say, well, what was it that Jesus was sharing? Well, maybe just from the book of Isaiah. Maybe he was sharing with them how Isaiah 7:14 said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Maybe he shared with them how in chapter 53 of Isaiah it talks about how the Messiah would in fact be rejected. How in chapter 50, verse 6, it said that they would spit upon him. That his, his countenance would be so disfigured by suffering that he wouldn't be recognized. Isaiah 52. That he would make a blood atonement. Isaiah 53. Or that He would be our substitute. And that He would save those who believe in Him. Or maybe He would have gone to Isaiah chapter 61 and talked about how the Messiah, the Christ, it says, was going to be someone who would heal the brokenhearted. Maybe he went to Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah talks about how the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. How the Messiah would be both God and man. How the Messiah would in fact be born of a virgin. The Old Testament was explicit in predictions concerning who Jesus was going to be. And the prophets didn't understand it. But they searched it out diligently and carefully, Peter says. But one thing they knew, they understood that it wasn't about them. He says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Now, Peter is talking about the people he is writing to, but it includes you and I. When the prophets were writing those things, he was doing it so that future generations could then take those teachings and they could look at those teachings and they could look at the life of Christ and say, wow, this truly is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. There was a mathematician who took just 21. Now I just gave you about 15 just from Isaiah and Jeremiah. There was a mathematician who took just 21 of the prophecies in the Old Testament about who the Messiah was going to be and calculated the odds of that happening in one person. The number that he came up with was so large that the best comparison is that if you took silver dollars and you painted one silver dollar red, and you stacked silver dollars six inches high over the whole state of Texas, and then you flew a helicopter overhead, and somebody was blindfolded, and the blindfolded person said, stop, the helicopter stopped, they let the person down, he reached down into the silver dollars, which he couldn't see, and pulled one out, the odds of him pulling out that painted silver dollar are the same as the odds of all of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in the person of Jesus, the son of the Holy Spirit and Mary, son of Joseph, line of David. Don't tell me there's not evidence that Jesus was in fact our Messiah, the Son of God. 
And that's why he said he gave it to those apostles then so that they could proclaim that word. You see, we've moved from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament apostles. And the point is, is that message of salvation was so great that they had to share that message. This was good news received from the Holy Spirit. And the source was none other than God. These were words they understood that were God-given. Something that could provide instruction. And it was so important to them that how many people did Jesus initially call to be His apostles? Twelve. Okay, we know what happened to Judas. That brings the number to eleven, correct? Out of those eleven remaining, do you know that ten of those eleven gave their lives? They were martyred for what they believed? In fact, the Apostle Paul was beheaded just outside of Rome even though he wasn't one of the ten. Peter, that we're reading about right here, was hung upside down, crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. Now listen to me. There are scholars out there who say, well, those ten people just concocted this story. They got it all together. They stole the body of Jesus and hid it so that then they could just start this new religion. You might die for something that is a good cause. My, I think my family is well aware that if I saw a little child out in the roadway about to get hit by a car, that I would do whatever I could to get that child out of the way, even if it cost me my life. We would give our life for a good cause. But is there anybody that you know that would give their life for something that they know to be a lie? No. And yet 10 of the 11 who followed Jesus saw Him after He was resurrected. They knew that that was true. And they took that message literally into all of the known world then. Let me give you an example that you might not be aware of. If you were to travel to Chennai, India, you would find this monument there. Now, as you can see from the picture, I borrowed it off the internet because you're supposed to buy it. That's what all these little A and Alami and all that's about on the picture. I just wanted you to see the monument that is in India. Do you know who this monument is dedicated to? It's dedicated to Thomas the Doubter. Doubting Thomas. Because you see, after Thomas saw the risen Lord and those holes in his hands and those holes in his side, he traveled all the way to Chennai, India, proclaiming the news. And this monument is where he was murdered and martyred by those of the Hindu belief because of him spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. They gave their lives because of that message. That's how great that good news of salvation is. But then there's that interesting statement in the passage that we read. 
that that salvation is so great, it says, that even the angels longed to look into it. You know, Peter's main point throughout has been that believers in Jesus Christ are incredibly blessed to live in the time when the predictions of the prophets have come to pass. And a similar lesson was communicated to the apostles by Jesus. If you go to Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 to 17, it says, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. I have a book back on my shelf written by a man by the name of Alistair Begg. He's a reformed preacher, but I just love to listen to him. He is biblical. One of the best sermons that I ever heard on the importance of baptism was preached by that reformed minister. He said, I know we don't say that baptism is necessary for salvation. He said, but listen to me. Many of you out here, mom and dad were with my wife and I, many of you out here today claim to be Christians and yet you have never submitted in obedience to baptism by immersion. And he said, and I don't understand that. Why wouldn't you want to confess and show people that you're willing to bury the old self? Alistair Begg has a book that's on my desk that says what angels wish they knew. Based on this passage. Because you see, as believers, we stand in contrast to the angels. They long to glance at and reflect upon and know the beauty of salvation. But they don't know that. Because even though they delight on God's saving actions, they don't get to experience the gospel in the same way as we do as human beings. Because they haven't had Jesus die for their sinfulness because they haven't been sinners. The ones who were, were cast out along with Satan and became the adversaries. So again, the privilege of enjoying and anticipating salvation comes to the forefront. Old Testament prophets saw it from afar. Angels marveled and just gazed upon what they saw being done. Can you imagine being a part of that first angel choir when they know what's happening and the little baby is being born and they say, oh man, I want to go down and part, be a part of this. And they get down there and, and the angel, the shepherds come in and they say, okay, one, two, three, let's go. Hallelujah. Ha, you know, just to be a part of that angel choir. That would have been awesome. Now listen. All of that's great. But here's the next verse. Therefore. Therefore. What do we do with the information regarding salvation? You see, while verses 1 to 12 celebrate what God has done, featuring that saving work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit back in verse 2, emphasizing the certain inheritance of salvation that you and I are going to enjoy in verses 3 to 5, 
Focusing on the love for and the joy in God that we saw last week in verses 6 to 9. And highlighting how privileged they were to live in the days when God's promises were being fulfilled. Here in our text, verses 10 to 12. In typical New Testament fashion, Peter calls you and I as believers to do something. Based on what we've read, verses 1 to 9, Therefore, and we're given three imperatives. Two of them we're going to look at briefly today. One of them I'm going to save till next week. So if you want the end of the sermon, you have to come back next Sunday. But the first two commandments that are given right there are first of all, verse 13, we're commanded to set our hope fully or completely on what Christ has done. The grace that'll be brought, that will be brought to you. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I love the whole thing. I just, I've really enjoyed. I tell you what, you calling me to minister here two years and three months ago has been one of the best things for my life, and I'll tell you why. I decided when I came here two years and three months ago that I was going to make it a systematic habit of every morning starting my day with reading through the Bible. And I have read through in these two years and three months, I've read through the New Testament now uh, eight, nine times. I've read through the Old Testament. I'm in the fifth time in these two years and three months. And I have learned so much But one of the passages that I really love is where Paul, writing to the Christians at Philippi, he says, finally, let me wrap it up. Let me give it to you in a nutshell. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise... Think about those things. In other words, don't let your mind get cluttered up with a lot of the other junk. And then he goes on. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me put into practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I've come to love the teaching of a man by the name of Shane Wood. He's several years younger. Shane and I studied under the same main professor, Dr. Bob Lowry. Shane is teaching down at Ozark Christian College. And he said one of the students came to him one night. And you might not understand this. I'm not sure I totally understand it. But one of the students came to him one night and he said, I don't know what's going on and I am scared to death. And Shane said, well, what? He said, I'll be sitting in my room. And all of a sudden, things will start moving around my room. With no windows open, no breezes. And Shane said, I looked at him and I asked him, what in the world is in your room? And he said, I don't know. And so Shane went with him. I have no reason to doubt Shane. He's a man of God. Shane went with him and they went to that young man's room. 
He's studying for the ministry. And one of his concerns is what's called the apologetic ministry. Being able to explain to non-believers why they should believe. And Shane said that we started going through his room. And he said, I found a Satanist Bible. And he said, why do you have this? And he said, so that I can talk to people who say they believe in Satan and I can show them the fallacy of what they believe. He said, you don't need that. All you need is the Bible to show them the truth, the Gospel. And he said, we got rid of that Satanist Bible. We burned it. And you know what? The young man never had things moving around in his room again. He hadn't given himself to Satan, but he had allowed and given Satan permission to be in his room by having them that there. Folks, we've got to do some house cleaning. We've got to make sure that those things, even if we aren't aware of it, to do some house cleaning and make sure that there aren't things that are in our house or in our minds or in our daily activities or stuff that people are sharing with us. I said goodbye to one of my best friends because he couldn't quit sending emails that had dirty jokes and stuff. And I said, Gene, if you can't send me emails without sending that, don't send me any more emails. He quit. But he quit sending emails completely. He ended up literally drinking himself to death at only 49 years of age. We have to set our hope on what Christ has done and think about good things. But secondly, he gives us another command. Verses 14 to 16, he says, Be holy in all your conduct. And he quotes Leviticus 11 where it says, You shall be holy for I am holy. They say, well, okay, what's that mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean sitting around with your legs crossed and your hands folded, staring at your belly button, going, I'm holy, Mm, yes, holy. The word holy means set apart. Being different. Being willing to be different. And you see, what this means is that they, nor we, are to give our desires that once controlled us or motivated us, we're not to give in to them. We're to live different lives as God's pilgrim children. I'm going to read a paragraph and then we'll close. This was written by my friend Bill Baker. He and Paul Carrier did a commentary on 1 Peter. Here's what he wrote. For some reason, we often think of holiness in a bad light. Some think holiness is offensive piety. So that they so that to be holy is to go around with a holier than thou attitude. Some such holy people recite religious platitudes. Don't you get tired of that when you're really hurting and somebody says, well, you just need to turn it all over to Jesus. Well, yeah, we do need to turn it over to Jesus, but that's not just a, you just need to, that's a hard task. 
They, they recite religious platitudes. They dress in certain patterns. They abstain from anything that brings joy and they judge all who disagree with them. Others think holiness is a charismatic extreme. They equate holiness with emotional displays like shouting and leaping and ecstatic speech and contemporary miracle working. Neither of these extremes is in any part what Peter is teaching. In Isaiah, that passage where it says that you will, the young men will rise up and fly like eagles. You know where it says God is with us the most? Not when we're flying like eagles. Have you watched an eagle fly? Anybody seen an eagle fly? You can watch them soar for a long way without ever moving their wings. And they'll dip down and they'll take advantage of an updraft and go way up high. And They don't need a lot of help when they're soaring. The next thing Isaiah says is you'll, you'll walk along. You'll run and, and He'll be there to help. But then the last thing He says is that God will still be there in those times when it's just barely. He'll increase the strength in those times when you're just barely able to move along getting one foot in front of the other. You see, since we're declared to be holy through God's grace, we need to live in a manner that is different. And that needs to include hope. I've shared with you over the last couple of weeks Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was executed by the Germans Karl Barth who was a part of the, the movement to uh, speak against Hitler and wrote a part of the Barman Confession let me share with you one more his name's Viktor Frankl Viktor Frankl was a medical doctor, Jewish medical doctor who was imprisoned by the Nazis in a concentration camp. He found that the loss of hope and courage had a deadly effect on the prisoners. The ones who died the first weren't the weakest necessarily. Sometimes it was the ones who were big and physically strong who would die first. And he said as he studied and watched the people and the prisoners, what he noticed was that when there, there were prisoners who no longer possessed a motive for living, when they no longer looked to the future and looked ahead, then they would curl up in a corner and they would die. And then he would write in this book, Man's Search for Meaning, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. I've been trying to lose weight. Uh, I have managed to get now down from 238 down to, I mean 338 down to 320, 21. Uh, but that's not where I want to be. I want to be down where I'm doing some of those things that I used to do on a regular basis without getting winded. So what do I need to do to help me in that? 
I've got to set some goals out there. I've got to say, okay, yeah, I, I did that 5K over in Goodland this spring. I need to do another 5K, and I need to have a better time. And then I need to move up and do a 10K. And maybe I'll get back to the point where, like when I was 30, I did one of those mini marathons. You know those people that drive around with the number 13.1 on their bumper stickers? When I was 30, I did one of those. That's 13.1 miles. And I did it averaging under 10-minute miles. Now, I was 30 then. I'm 66 now. I'm not going to have 10-minute miles. But if I could do the 13.1 miles, even if it was 20-minute miles, that would be a success. So I've got to put those goals out there to encourage me, to help me. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He has given us a living hope, He said. A motive for living. He's brought to us salvation. A future to look forward to. And yet, not just in the future, but in the here and now. When I die, having done my best to live the Christian life, if in fact there is no life after death, I haven't lost anything. Because I have lived a full and abundant life. I have watched some of my children as they have given their lives to the Lord and have chosen to be faithful and regular and serve. Jesus has given me life and life more abundant. That, my friends, is the beauty of salvation. But look at the other side. If I don't give my life to Jesus Christ, if I don't live obediently, if I'm not faithful, if I don't strive to set myself apart to be holy, and I die and the Bible is correct, there really is a judgment day, I've lost eternity. Let's pray.